Welcome back to Unprecedental. I'm Adam White. President Joe Biden came to office with significant plans for his first day and his first 100 days. A day one agenda, signing a flurry of executive orders to chart a course for the administration, is a relatively new tradition. But the notion of the first 100 days as a milestone for an energetic presidency is of much older vintage. It traces back to nearly a century, to 1933, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office amid the depths of the Great Depression. That very first first 100 days was the subject of a best-selling book a few years ago titled The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. Its author, Jonathan Alter, is a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, a columnist for The Daily Beast, the author of several best-selling political histories, most recently his biography of Jimmy Carter titled His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And Jonathan is our guest today. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Now, you've written several books on presidents. And as I mentioned, last September saw the release of your new biography of Jimmy Carter. And before that, you wrote books on President Obama, including one focused specifically on his first year in office. And I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts on those presidents' first 100 days and and Joe Biden's as well. But let's start at the start. How did the notion of a presidency's first 100 days first come about? So the first use of the 100 days metric was actually in the 19th century. And it was in France because It was exactly 100 days between Napoleon's return from Elba and his defeat at the decisive Battle of Waterloo. And this was something that Franklin Roosevelt had in the back of his mind. He had studied history. And so in July of 1933, when the special session of Congress that he had summoned left town, he noticed that it was exactly 100 days from March 9th when that special session had assembled. And so in a press conference, he looked back at you know, his debut in the presidency and what had been accomplished, said it's been 100 days, and, and it stuck. His successors really didn't like that frame because it, it tends to sort of hem presidents in. It is a pretty artificial metric. So pretty much all of them have resisted it and and not been thrilled that their presidencies are being judged by what they accomplished right out of the gate. And John F. Kennedy in his famous inaugural address, which is best known for his saying that, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He also said, our administration, something to the effect of our work will not be done in the first hundred days or the first thousand days or even our lifetime on this planet. And Arthur Schlesinger, his, you know, his aide and speechwriter, later wrote after Kennedy's death a book called A Thousand Days that was about you know, the two and a half years of the Kennedy administration. But it signaled that Kennedy, who did not actually have a very good first 100 days, really didn't want to be judged that way. The next president who had a really momentous 100 days was LBJ. And actually, I'm just working on an article about this. So not his first 100 days after the Kennedy assassination, but his first 100 days after being sworn in on January 20th, 1965, following his election. 
the year 1965 arguably exceeded Roosevelt's first year in how much it changed the country. So you had, in Roosevelt's case, most of what was done in the first 100 days related to rescuing the banking system, price supports, and one other major program, the Civilian Conservation Corps, that I'll get to in a minute. But in a lot of ways, his first 100 days in 1933, the closest parallel are Obama's first 100 days in 2009, when he, like Roosevelt, had to rescue the banking system. Biden's challenges are actually more like LBJ. So LBJ got through major legislation on health, Voting Rights Act, education, immigration, precisely the same agenda that Joe Biden has right now. So in some ways, I would say that 1965 is the best comparison to 2021. And you have a recent column out, which we'll circle back to in a little bit on situating Biden's first 100 days in those historical contexts. I'd say reading your book, and, and I couldn't recommend it higher. I hope our listeners, if they haven't already read it, they find it and read it because it's a fascinating and, and real fast moving story about those opening weeks and months of, of FDR's first term. I was struck by how different that first 100 days were from the modern concept of the first 100 days in a few ways, which we can get to sort of one by one. And one is legislation versus execution, right? Or say administration. FDR's first 100 days really were a, a legislative effort. Today, I think we, we tend to think of first 100 days as much administrative as, as anything else. And there's, of course, legislation, but just given the sheer scope of modern administration, there's just so much a president can and needs to do early on through the administrative process that in some ways differs from what was at Roosevelt's disposal. Second, I think one of the major themes of your book is Roosevelt knew, he saw the, the problems that needed to be tackled. How could he not see them? But he came to office with an open mind and flexibility over what the actual policies would be. Am I, am I being fair in, in characterizing it that way? Yeah. So both are important questions, Adam. Roosevelt came to office at a time when a lot of Americans wanted a dictator. That word actually had a positive connotation in 1933. The great columnist of the day, Walter Lippmann, went to see Roosevelt and said, you know, Franklin, you may have to assume dictatorial powers. The press sometimes ran headlines, wanted a dictator. The Studebaker automaker came out with a car called the Dictator, which sold pretty well. Even Eleanor Roosevelt said that he might have to assume temporary dictatorial powers. And this is because- That was just amazing, by the way. You, you detail all of that in the book. And it, it was astonishing to read sort of the accounts of, of Littman's writings and, and all of that. That was just fascinating. Yeah. So- because Congress had failed and because the country was curled up in the fetal position and because authoritarianism was sweeping the world, like Mussolini, who had come to power several years earlier, was very popular in the United States in 1933. Hitler was new, so he was just coming to power that year, right around the same time Roosevelt did. So people didn't know much about him yet. But there was a fashion for, if not fascism, very strong leadership. And what I found, and this was my big discovery when I researched that book, I was at the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York, 
And I came across a draft of a radio speech that Roosevelt was supposed to deliver on his, did deliver on his second day in office. And the draft, which he did not use, it was a speech to the American Legion. And it said to these World War I veterans who were in the American Legion, guys in their 30s, you will be at my disposal for the duration of this crisis. And this was kind of like Roosevelt creating a private army like Mussolini had and Hitler would later have, you know, black shirts, brown shirts in Germany. These would be, you know, like Roosevelt's army. And he could have done it, easily could have done it, could have drafted them back into service at his command. He decided not to give that speech. And instead, in his radio address to the American Legion, it was just a kind of anodyne restatement of his inaugural address. And what I concluded is that Roosevelt decided he was not going to go extra constitutional. He was not going to make unilateral decisions without Congress, and that he would at least try to get his bills through Congress. If he didn't, I think he then would have taken more executive action. But he decided, he made a conscious decision to try to work with Congress first, and he did so very successfully. On the second question, you know, the most important speech that Roosevelt gave in the 1932 campaign, and one of the most important speeches of his entire life, was an address to Oglethorpe University in Georgia. He wrote this speech out at a kind of a vista near Warm Springs, Georgia, that his bodyguards would take the cushion out of his car, remove it, and they'd put it outside so that the paralyzed president could sit on that cushion and have a picnic. And he was out there with a couple of other people, and he thought about what he was going to say in this speech. And what he said is, we need, and Americans demand, bold, persistent experimentation. Take one method and try it. If it doesn't work, try another. But above all, try something. This is the spirit of the New Deal. In his inaugural address, you know, when he said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, that was kind of inspired nonsense. I mean, if you're worried about what having enough to eat or putting a roof over your head, that's not, you're not fearing fear itself. You're fearing something real, right? The most important things he said in that speech were his use of the word action. He said, we need action and action now. And then he repeated it another three times, that word action. To your question, what would that action be? And that's where the experimentation part comes in. It would not be, you know, some plan that he was implementing. It was to throw a lot of stuff against the wall. And so his aide, Raymond Moley, later said that to say that the New Deal was some, you know, well thought out plan would be like to say that a boy's bedroom with, you know, broken baseball bats and old tennis shoes and a chemistry set strewn across the floor had all been put there by an interior decorator. So this was the spirit. But having said that, there was a coherence to what he did in the first hundred days. And it, it basically was a change in the relationship of the people and their government, and especially a change in the relationship of the market and the government. We went, as Roosevelt said, from uh, buyer beware 
to seller beware with the first regulation of Wall Street, for instance. Much of it, though, was not nearly as progressive, I guess you could say, as a lot of today's progressives are saying. For instance, the bank rescue plan was basically Herbert Hoover's bank rescue plan. The New York progressives wanted Roosevelt to nationalize the banks in the same way that in 2009, you know, Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists, they wanted Obama to nationalize Citibank. In both cases, Roosevelt and Obama chose the more moderate course of action, which was to reopen the banks, stabilize the banks using other means, either in Roosevelt's case, the establishment of FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance, and in Obama's case, stress tests. You mentioned Hoover, and obviously that he looms large early in the book. Joe Biden is not the first president to arrive in office after a very difficult transition or non-transition, as we just saw with President Trump. FDR taking up after Hoover was similarly complicated. And I think if I remember you correctly, 1933 was the last time that we inaugurated the, a new president in March rather than January. So you had, right, I guess, five, five months of, of transition, but sort of the opposite of the Trump to Biden transition. It wasn't that Hoover was giving FDR the silent treatment on the way in, quite the opposite. It was that Hoover was trying to pin FDR down on policy to sort of make FDR seem to publicly buy into Hoover policy. Now, as a Hawkeye and an Iowa Hawkeye and a veteran of the Hoover Institution, I have plenty of nice things to say about Herbert Hoover, but it, it was fascinating to read in your book the way that FDR resisted being pinned down by Hoover, in part, I, I guess, as they always say, so that Hoover could sort of bear the political burden of the Depression, but also so that FDR could have this maximum flexibility upon taking office to, to try what he was going to try. Yeah. And, you know, he took it to such an extent that at one point Hoover sent him a letter urging him, had it hand delivered to him when he was at a banquet in New York, to get him to join him in a joint proclamation. And what Hoover wanted him to do was to come out for balancing the budget and renegotiating foreign debt and dealing with the Depression the way Hoover had tried and failed to deal with it. And, and Hoover later admitted that if Roosevelt had joined him in his efforts, he would have repudiated, I think he said, three quarters of the, quote, so-called New Deal. And so Roosevelt resisted being dragged into cooperating with Hoover. And in the case of that letter, he actually told Hoover that the secretary had lost it, that he'd never even gotten it, which was <laughs> not true. Roosevelt was not, you know, full bore malignant liar like Trump, but he he did fib or lie a hell of a lot more than, say, Jimmy Carter did. And this was one of those cases. And then later, when on the day before the inauguration, which, as you say, was March 4th in those days, Roosevelt goes in to meet with Hoover in the White House, and it goes really badly. And so Roosevelt said later that his son, Jimmy, who was there, wanted to punch Hoover in the eye. And Eleanor was listening, you know, eavesdropping from another room. And she much later reported, or the person she told it to reported that 
they were yelling at each other. And Hoover is saying, you know, join me in closing the banks. And Roosevelt says, you're still president, you know, close them now. And if you don't, I'll do it myself when I take over, which he did, because the banks at that time were cratering. But the result of Roosevelt not cooperating with Hoover was that they did have this sharp break from the prior administration. And in that sense, this period is very comparable because, you know, obviously after the insurrection and, you know, the big lie that Biden stole the election, the break with Trump is could not be sharper. And in that sense, it's, it's similar to the, the break with Hoover, although Hoover wasn't so ungracious as to ditch Roosevelt's inauguration. They were stuck together in the same car, right? Silently stuck next to each other, yeah. Right. So they're in the car and and they only exchange two words. It's really frosty inside that car. And they only exchange two words. They pass the Commerce Building where Hoover had been Secretary of Commerce and there's a new Commerce Building under construction. And Roosevelt looks out the window and says, lovely steel. And those are the (laughs) last two words they ever exchanged after they got out of the car. They never saw each other again. And they had been good friends during World War I, Hoover and Roosevelt. The other reason, I think, for the sharp break, you know, was that Roosevelt just, his temperament was so different than Hoover's. And, and I think, again, there's a comparison here with Biden and Trump. Trump doesn't resemble Hoover. Jimmy Carter actually resembled Hoover in certain ways. but. Biden does resemble Roosevelt. And shortly after Roosevelt was inaugurated, he went to Oliver Wendell Holmes's 92nd birthday party in Georgetown. And when he left, Holmes said famously, second class intellect, first class temperament. I think you could say the same thing about Joe Biden. You know, he's not nearly as smart as Jimmy Carter. He was the first person to endorse Jimmy Carter, by the way, in 1976. And he's not as smart as Barack Obama, but he, he has a first-class temperament, and temperament is more important than IQ in the Oval Office. That's the theme that comes across really clearly in the Roosevelt story, too, that setting aside the policies, whether executive or legislative, setting aside all of that, so much of the first 100 days was a matter of conveying a sensibility and a temperament to the public. Right, that that Roosevelt was a different president who would go about this differently with different focus on, on on the people, and that just that sort of it was a sort of a calming influence that he tried to assert over the people. I mean, a financial crisis is in so many ways as we want to call it a psychological crisis or whatever. It's a panic in many ways, and Roosevelt's task was not just to pick the right policies, but was to convey a certain sensibility and reassurance to the people in addition to those policies or to reinforce the policies. Yeah, that sangfroid, that calming quality, you know, I think the American public first saw it in February, just before Roosevelt was sworn in. He was on Vincent Astor's yacht. They docked in Miami and a gunman, Giuseppe Zangara, got off five shots at close range. And if a little old lady hadn't shaken his arm, pushed his arm, he would have killed Roosevelt. He ended up killing the mayor of Chicago, who was hit by one of his bullets. And Roosevelt's reaction was kind of like, well, okay, 
this happened. And a lot of people, you know, thought that he had been spared by God for a purpose. So there was some of that which helped him after he took over in the same way that Ronald Reagan, when he was shot in 1981, after he recovered, met with Rooseveltian sense of confidence and, and a kind of an, an ease with which he handled all that. After that, Reagan's program went flying through Congress. I noticed that, and so I resurrected this incident, this shooting in Miami from a footnote, and I made it a kind of a central part of my narrative, because I, I do think that it, it helped him a lot. But a lot of it was just his natural temperament and the way he talked to the American people. So, you know, when he gave his first fireside chat, first of all, you know, he, he revolutionizes communications, because instead of shouting over the radio like politicians had done until then, and some still shout when they speak, he spoke very calmly, you know, as if he was in your living room with you. And he'd start out by saying, my friends. Well, that's a very reassuring, calming thing to say. We're all in this together. You're my friends. We need to calm down. And then, then he says in his first fireside chat, you know, hoarding has become a terribly unfashionable pastime. And what he's talking about there was that just a couple weeks earlier, a week earlier, before the banks closed, you have these panics, huge bank runs. People are lining up. You remember the movies from the 30s, like all these people lining up, they get to the teller and the, the thing comes down, you know, the shade comes down. No more, no more money in the <laughs> bank. And they're, you know, people that, and the ones who did get their money out, what did they do with it? They literally put it under their mattress. They would sleep with a gun to make sure nobody stole it. So Roosevelt says on the radio, courting has become a terribly unfashionable pastime. When the banks reopen under my plan, take your money out from under the mattress and redeposit it. And the people did. You know, that's leadership if you can get them to do that, right? Roosevelt transforming his relationship to the people through that medium of the radio. In some ways, reading your book, it reminded me, I guess it's because we just finished the holiday season, it reminded me of, of the way that Bing Crosby, right, transformed musical performance. It was sort of the first generation of singers who understood how they could work with the medium of radio, and they didn't need to shout the songs. They weren't in a theater. Yeah. Yeah, they could yeah. forge like a very personal connection. That right. sort of performative quality that really comes across for Roosevelt's performative quality in your book. Right. So that is, I mean, I, I use the Bing Crosby comparison because, you know, crooning right. was different than the way people used to sing. And Roosevelt's tone was different than the way people had talked on the radio. And so I think it's a great comparison. You know, the power of radio, which was just then emerging in the previous 10 years, the penetration of radio was astonishing. And suddenly, the president could be in your home. And it was, you know, I mean, I, I talked to Jimmy Carter when I was researching my, my new book about his sitting around in Plains, or actually Archery, Georgia, where they, they lived at that time in, in the 30s, and listening to the president on the radio. It was a transforming experience. Another, you've written a whole book about Roosevelt's first 100 days, and we could spend hours on it. Again, I encourage to read it. In addition to everything else we discussed, there's so much more. And I, I particularly enjoyed your, your accounts of Roosevelt picking his team and all that that entailed. But listeners will have to go to the book to find that. Let's, let's move forward, not quite yet to Biden, but 
in the middle there, you've, you've now covered 10 presidential campaigns yourself. And so I guess that means 10, you've been focused then afterwards on many presidential transitions. How has the first 100 days changed just in your time of covering the presidency? If you'd like to focus on Carter or, or Reagan or any others, I mean, have you seen any marked differences in, in how that the first 100 days tradition has played out over time? Well, I think all presidents want to build up a head of steam, you know, early on, have some early victories that they can build on. And the sequencing of their program becomes very important. And on several occasions, they've kind of screwed up that sequencing or external events have intruded. So just to sort of move forward from FDR, Truman didn't really have a first 100 days because he came to office on Roosevelt's death. Eisenhower, in his first 100 days, he, he didn't you know, introduce a really ambitious program or anything like that, but he did begin to wind down the war in Korea, as he had promised. Kennedy's first 100 days were dominated by the fiasco at the Bay of Pigs in April of 1961. And so he just, you know, got completely derailed and had a almost useless first 100 days, bad first 100 days. Johnson, as I mentioned, you know, his first 100 days after being sworn in, after winning the election, were momentous. Nixon's first 100 days were pretty much dominated by anti-war demonstrations dealing with domestic unrest. Carter actually, Ford, you know, didn't really have a first hundred days. Carter's first hundred days were surprised me when I researched them. As Jody Powell, his press secretary, said, you know, not only did we not get a honeymoon, we didn't even get a one-night stand. And he's right that the press was all over him early on. But he, on his first day in office, he pardoned draft dodgers, which was a huge thing and very controversial. Then he began to pursue his human rights policy by writing Andrei Sakharov in the Soviet Union. And so he was staking out things that became very important. But also there was a a huge cold snap, and he went on and announced a new energy policy with a cardigan sweater. Remember that? And people like laugh at that. They say, oh, that was Mr. Rush. It was actually really popular at the time. And Carter became very popular in his first 100 days. He was over 70%. But he wasn't able to get much of his program through. And he made a terrible mis- political mistake in canceling a bunch of water projects. And this pissed off the congressional committee chairs and really hurt his legislative efforts, although eventually he got through much, much more legislation and changed the country much more than people understand. And in that sense, he shouldn't be judged. And I don't think any president should really be judged on what they do in their first hundred days, because it's just too short a period of time. Reagan, as we mentioned, got shot in his first 100 days, and that accelerated his advancement of his program through the Congress. Bush did not have a particularly eventful first 100 days. Bill Clinton got sidetracked 
with gays in the military controversy and other things that prevented him from getting very far in what were described as a fairly chaotic first hundred days. I think that, you know, George W. Bush's 100 days in 2001 were sort of marred by how long it took him to come to office and his not having his act fully together, and also by an external event that's been long forgotten where the Chinese downed an American plane and there was a foreign policy mini crisis over that. It was before 9-11. But in his first 100 days, he, in retrospect, made a terrible mistake, and that is that he rejected the advice of Robert Clark, his terrorism advisor, to prepare better against terrorism. And, and actually, his national security advisors wouldn't even give Warren Rudman and Gary Hart, who had authored a bipartisan report on terrorism, they wouldn't even give them a hearing. So the Bush administration was much less prepared for 9-11 than they should have been. You know, Obama, I think we, we talked about, you know, he had a very, very successful first hundred days in basically rescuing our financial system and getting through a close to trillion dollar stimulus package. Yeah, and that's the subject of your book, The Promise, President Obama, Year One. Yeah, as I mentioned, just teeing up our conversation, we've seen this, this, this sort of in the most recent presidencies, Trump more than Obama, Obama more than Bush, I think that's right, a rollout of executive orders on, on day one. But I think it builds on itself, right? The fact that each president comes to office and has to undo the executive orders that his predecessor put into place. President Biden is no exception, I think, on day one. And we're recording this the day after the inauguration. It'll come out a couple, a few days after that. I think he signed 17 executive actions. Some were orders, some were memoranda. But he has a, they've already telegraphed a, a steady sort of agenda mm-hmm. of executive action while at the same time looking to see what they can do with Congress. And as I alluded earlier, your most recent column at the time we, we taped this, most recent column for the Daily Beast is titled, Biden's first 100 days will be the biggest since FDR's. And as you already mentioned a little bit in our conversation, you said there are striking similarities between 1933 and 2021 in terms of the challenges the country faces, but also, as you've said, in sort of the temperament of the president newly arrived in office. So what should we expect from Biden in 100 days? Well, first of all, just to continue on the comparison between Biden and Roosevelt, not only do they both have second-class intellect, first-class temperament, but they've both been ennobled by suffering. In Roosevelt's case, it was polio. In Biden's case, it was personal loss in his family. But this gave both of them an empathy and a resilience that can really contribute to presidential success. I thought that Biden's inauguration was very successful and moving and inspirational. And I am actually an optimist on what he can accomplish. And I've just written another piece that hasn't been published yet, believe is going to come out in the Washington Post in a couple of days, about why I'm an optimist on on his first hundred days or first year, really, because a lot of it won't get done in the first hundred days. The COVID relief package, I think it's pretty clear, is going to go through in some form, maybe not the full $1.9 trillion, but an awful lot of it. And the parts that he cannot get through with bipartisan support, 
that are filibustered, he will be able to use one of two opportunities to use budget reconciliation, which is a technical way of saying that he only needs 51 votes. And he has 50 votes, 50 Democrats plus Vice President Harris breaking the tie. So they can use reconciliation to get a lot of his program through. And some of it they really can't use reconciliation for. So I I don't actually have much confidence that he's going to be able to get a big immigration package through. He can do some things. He's already started to do some things through executive action on immigration. But however, the big question and the big decision he has to make that will determine a lot of his legislative success in his first 100 days and first year is whether to abolish the filibuster. Now, right now, he doesn't have the votes for it. So it's kind of a phony debate. First of all, he doesn't favor it, in part because he understands, Biden understands as a creature and veteran of the Senate, that you know the shoe is often pretty quickly on the other foot. And if we just look at the last few years, the Democrats being able to use the filibuster, have, they've prevented Trump from doing a lot of damage from their perspective. And if the filibuster had been abolished, Trump would have gotten a lot more done. And there are enough Democrats who remember that, like Joe Manchin, for instance, that there just aren't the votes to get rid of the filibuster. And progressives who keep saying, well, why doesn't they just get rid of the filibuster? And the answer is, there aren't the votes for it. But what there might be, and this is what I'm going to try to introduce into the into the debate a little bit, what there might be room for is chipping away at the filibuster. Over the last 10 years, the filibuster has been chipped away at twice, once for executive branch appointments. So if you want, you can't filibuster you know, a nomination for secretary of state because the filibuster had been abused and positions were not being filled. So that was changed. The filibuster doesn't apply in that case. And then first under Obama and then under Trump, federal judges and now Supreme Court justices cannot be filibustered. And this is why, you know, Amy Coney Barrett went sailing through. So my proposal is that a third category of exemption from filibuster be introduced. And that's what I call the democracy option after the nuclear option, which was the first way of describing lifting the filibuster. And the democracy option would lift the filibuster requirement in all cases involving enfranchisement, the right to vote. And that they would then, with 51 votes, because they're not going to get hardly any Republicans, if any at all, they could pass H.R. 1, which is the Senate just passed in the last House. And the Senate just said it was their S1 also, and it's the John Lewis Act, and it would basically dramatically expand access to voting and ban voter suppression in the states and repair the Voting Rights Act. And it would be a bill if passed on the order of the Voting Rights Act. It would be a very dramatic piece of legislation that would address structural racism because much of the voter suppression is racist at its root. And open a new chapter so that democracy would prevail, in Biden's words, not just in the present, but in the future. 
Maybe we'll, we'll finish our conversation on, on this point about Biden, and you've already been alluding to it. It's President Biden's unique background as as a senator, not just a senator who served a term, but a senator who was a, a senator for a very long time and who really sort of defined himself until he arrived in the Obama administration as a man of the Senate. You've already touched on this a bit with respect to the filibuster, but I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on how you think this dynamic will play out between Biden and the legislative process. And I would just add, I think it's interesting, not just that Biden is a man of the Senate, but he's surrounded by so many advisors who have known him for so long, many of them dating back to his years in the Senate. So it's not as though he's a man of the Senate surrounded by people who really only like the executive branch. He's surrounded by people who appreciate his appreciation, if nothing else, of the Senate. So how do you think President Biden will, will relate to the legislative process? I think that's a really good point, Adam, about the people around him. And, you know, Ron Klain worked in the Senate as chief of staff and quite a number of others. So there's been a lot of talk about how narrow the Democratic margins are, six seats in the House and, you know, 50-50 in the Senate. And people are using that to express skepticism about what can get done. But what they don't account for, and the reason I am cautiously optimistic, is that Joe Biden is a master of the legislative arts. And Barack Obama had just stopped by the Senate for a cup of coffee before he was president, you know. And when he needed to actually get something done, he sent his vice president to go cut the deal. Now, there are progressives who are not going to like the deals that Biden cuts, but they're going to have to get used to, you know, three quarters of a loaf being better than no loaf. And I think Biden. He's known Mitch McConnell for 30 years, worked closely with him and others. Biden will get it done in many areas. And he understands in a very sophisticated way because of all that experience that politics is the art of the possible and you, you, know, you take what you can get. So a lot, of, a lot of his challenge, I think, will be managing the expectations of the Democratic Party. But if he can keep it civil and, and is in the most important line, I think the line that history will remember, end this uncivil war, he's going to get a lot more done than people expect. It's probably no surprise for me to say, I probably won't like a lot of the policies that he ends up supporting. That's why I'm not a progressive. I've always, I mean, I'm not even center left. I'm center right. But I will say, in addition to really admiring his inaugural address, I also think that whatever policies end up emerging from the administration, I think I will really enjoy seeing a presidency and Congress try to work together in a legislative process. I mean, maybe to borrow the loaf metaphor, I might not like the flavor of the bread, but I am going to be glad that they're learning to bake again, because I think that the, the work of legislation has really fallen apart, to say the least. And in that respect, President Biden, who, again, I'm, I'll have no shortage of disagreements with, I do think in that respect, he's certainly in a ideally situated to help repair that. And, and I hope he does. Well, I hope you have a lot of company, Adam. I mean, I do have a feeling that smash mouth politics, which we've had really since the rise of Newt Gingrich 30 years ago. I mean, I, I think of it as like, you know, the Europeans had the 30 years war in the, in the 17th century. You know, we've had a 30 year war in this country. 30-year partisan war. And it's time for it to come to an end. And 
Biden has really staked his whole presidency on that. Now, people say, well, because of the siloed media system that we have, that's not going to happen. And I, I understand that. It's an impediment. But the insurrection, which we haven't fully processed yet, it will, I think, lower the temperature. You know, that understandably scared the hell out of people on Capitol Hill. And yes, you're going to still have like you've got these jokers who are talking trash. But it's important to remember that they are noise, not news anymore. They don't have a friend in the White House, these guys on the House side. They don't have a filibuster on the House side. They have no power and they should be ignored. There are 43 out of 50 Senate Republicans who did not sign on to overturning a free and fair election. Only seven, you know, including Cruz and Hawley and a few others. The rest of them can all be appealed to by Joe Biden. They believe in our democracy. And so they can be negotiated with. And we can, we can return to what they call regular order and, and a regular Senate. The seven who are authoritarian, I got a little bit more of a problem figuring out how they're going to be you know, brought back in. But Biden is you know, a forgiving sort, and he'll probably you know, be happy to deal with them too. Some of us have longer memories about them because they basically, they weren't themselves engaged in a violent insurrection, but they were engaged in a a bloodless coup attempt. That's what Josh Hawley was trying to do. Yeah, Jonathan, when a year or two from now, when we can all look back and see how this immediate moment plays out, I hope you'll write another book about it. And I'll look forward to reading it then. In the meantime, I'll be reading your columns and, and watching for you on TV. Again, for our listeners, the book we've mainly been discussing is Jonathan Alter's account of FDR's first 100 days titled The Defining Moment. His most recent book, which came out just at the end of September, is a biography of Jimmy Carter titled his very best, Jimmy Carter, a life. Our guest today has been NBC's Jonathan Alter. Jonathan, thank you. Thanks, Adam. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential.